Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at at elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers, and I have to say I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Nick Kozalek, instructor of philosophy at Auburn University, and he is here to discuss the role of belief in reasoning. Nick Kozalek, welcome. Thanks, Matt. So one of the topics you've worked on is what philosophers have called judgment. Uh, So I thought maybe we could begin by talking about what judgments are. We're not talking about like the judge in a court of law or something. Uh, So what is a judgment in this sense of the term? Right, good. I should start by saying actually that what I call a judgment is maybe importantly different in certain respects from what other philosophers have called judgment. But the way that I understand judgment is actually essentially as a component of a larger mental act. And so I'll explain judgments by talking about their role in these larger mental acts. So, for example, I think that a judgment is the only kind of component in um, an act of inferring, that is, an act of coming to believe something on the basis of something else you already believe. So, for example, if I believe that all philosophers are wise, and I believe that Socrates is a philosopher, I might infer that Socrates is wise, and so come to form this new belief. Now, I think of those kinds of acts is essentially involving judgments. So although I just described that act of inferring in terms of belief by saying it's an act of coming to believe something, you can also describe the same act, on my view, in terms of judgment. And so you can say that what that act of inferring is is an act of judging that Socrates is wise on the basis of your judgments that all philosophers are wise and that Socrates is a philosopher. So it sounds a little bit like you know, I think to myself, gee, Matt, you know what? Socrates is a philosopher. Is that the same thing as judging that Socrates is a philosopher? This is kind of a hard and complicated question in a certain respect. So one way that a lot of philosophers have talked about judgment is by analogy with assertion. So they say that to judge something is like saying something out loud to yourself, only not doing it out loud necessarily. So it's like saying something to yourself in your mind. Part of the idea of explaining judgments in terms of acts like inferring is that it, I think, brings out certain aspects of the act of judgment that that other way of describing it by comparing it with assertion sort of leaves out. The connection of judgment with 
you're figuring out what to believe, you're figuring out what you know, what you should think about the way that the world is. So one way of thinking about this is that I'm actually a little bit skeptical of the idea that you can just judge something by itself without doing so in doing anything else. So what I mean is, I'm sort of skeptical of the idea that you can just like be sitting around and just judge to yourself, there are trucks in the street. And even if you can do that kind of thing, I think it's much more revealing of the nature of judgment to think of the kind of role that it plays in these larger acts like inferring or perceiving. So judgments will be the things that you do as a result of perceiving when you come to know or believe something on the basis of perception. So if I look out in the street and I see a truck and I come to believe that there's a truck in the street, then on my view, in coming to believe that, I judge that there was a truck in the street. And this is true even if I didn't sort of have the sentence, there is a truck in the street, go through my head, or anything like that. So in my view, there's nothing in particular that it's like to judge. You don't have to have any particular kind of experience in performing the judgment. So although there may be something to the analogy between judging and asserting, I don't actually think that that's the most revealing way of bringing out what judging is. I think judging is part of these larger mental acts, sort of most fundamentally. Okay, so we had an example of some reasoning there. All philosophers are wise. Socrates is a philosopher. Ergo, Socrates is wise. Because that's just, you know, we had a general statement. We had an instance of it. So the generalization implies the instance. So yeah, so it kind of sounds like judgments on this conception are like component parts of reasoning. Like the, you know, the bits. So in that piece of reasoning, it would be like, all philosophers are wise would be one part of me engaging in that reasoning. And then the next step in that piece of reasoning is saying that Socrates is a philosopher. And then the final step in that piece of reasoning is deciding on the basis of those two things that Socrates is wise. So the judgments are like the parts of reasoning or something. Yeah, that's right. Although you do have to be kind of careful here, I think, in how you're thinking about the parts. Not only because I want to avoid this sort of view on which you have to be kind of rehearsing the sentences in your mind as part of judging. I think that's really no part of it. In fact, I might as well just say that on the conception of judgment I prefer, I'm perfectly happy to say that non-linguistic animals, animals that can't speak any language, can perform judgments. So in particular, any creature that's able to come to know things on the basis of perception, in the way that it, you know, it seems like your cat can come to know that there's a mouse in the room by seeing the cat, I'll say that when the cat forms that belief or comes to know that there's a mouse in the room on the basis of that perception, that involves the judgment that there's a mouse in the room. Is this at all related to acting like there's a mouse in the room or is that like a separate thing? The stuff about the connection between belief and action is actually really interesting. There certainly have been philosophers who've taken this view that, you know, to believe that something is the case is just to act as if that's the case. So that believing that there's a mouse in the room is just acting as if there's a mouse in the room. And so it'll involve, if you're a human being, I guess, standing up on tables or chairs. If you're a cat, it'll involve hunting the thing down. And there's a lot of complicated story that that kind of view has to be able to tell about exactly what behavior goes with what beliefs. On my view, there is a connection between belief and action, and so between judgment and action in the same sort of way. But it's going to be work out slightly differently. So in fact, I think that when you act, 
that's also going to involve judgments about the way the world is and about, say, what you want, that will be what leads you to act. And so when the cat believes there's a mouse and then goes running after the mouse because it wants to kill it or however exactly we should think of that, that also involves the judgment that there's a mouse there. But ultimately, I want to actually define belief in terms of judgment. And so the connection between belief and action is a little bit looser than it is on some of these other views. So what a judgment is, is just as you said, Matt, a component of these larger mental acts. And so these include things, what I call epistemic acts, like perceiving and inferring, where when all goes well, you come to know something new. But they'll also involve practical acts like forming intentions or just acting intentionally, where part of what leads you to act in that way is some belief or judgment that you make about how the world is. Although in that case, unlike in the case of inference, where in inference, what sort of combines to bring about your new belief is just other beliefs, in action and in the formation of intention, you'll have beliefs that go into bringing it about that you act or form an intention, but you'll also have desires that play a similar sort of role. Yeah, interesting. So when we're talking about reasoning, we're not just talking about these kind of abstract theoretical matters or like sitting in your head and thinking hard about stuff type reasoning, like with the Socrates case. We're also thinking about what people sometimes call practical reasoning, which is figuring out what to do on the basis of maybe some information you have. Yeah, that's right. And actually, one of the really important things for me is that The examples that I like to use, I always try to pick examples that are sort of really simple and everyday examples. So I don't want to be thinking when I'm trying to figure out how believing and judging and inferring work about really sort of abstract, difficult, theoretical matters. Um, I don't want to start by thinking about the kind of reasoning that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, the kind of thing that you, you know, might do in a college class about, you know, whatever. Instead, I want to think about sort of really, really everyday things. So my favorite sorts of examples are things like, suppose that I make an appointment to meet with a colleague, let's call him Nathan, on Friday afternoon. And I do this on Monday. So Monday, Nathan and I talk and we decide, let's get together on Friday afternoon. And now we suppose that on sort of Friday morning I wake up and as every Friday, I'm thankful that the weekend is almost here. So I know that it's Friday. But I decided to sit down and do some work in the morning and I get distracted, get really into my work. And it's not until sort of very late in the day that I suddenly realize, shoot, I forgot to go to that meeting with Nathan. And so first of all, I think this is the kind of thing that happens to us all the time that we sort of, you know, you can make plans with someone and then as we say, you forget about them. And then suddenly you remember, maybe in time or maybe too late. And what I think is going on here is that Since you made this appointment to meet with this colleague, Nathan, on Monday, you knew for the whole week that you had this appointment on Friday. So while you forgot it, it didn't go out of your mind in the sense that the only way of recovering it is for Nathan to remind you, say. It could just reoccur to you that you have this meeting. You might remind yourself of it over the course of the week. Similarly, it seems like from the moment you wake up on Friday morning, you know perfectly well that it's Friday. So it seems like for the whole day on Friday, you know both that you have to meet with Nathan on Friday and that today is Friday. But somehow you fail to combine these pieces of information 
And so you don't yet actually draw this conclusion that you need to meet with Nathan, not just on Friday, but today. And so I think that when you finally draw that conclusion, when it occurs to you, I needed to meet with Nathan today, that is an inference in the sense that I'm really fundamentally interested in. This sort of act of putting together disparate pieces of information to come to believe or know something new. Okay, so we have this example of making an appointment to meet a friend. And somehow what happens when this goes well is you think to yourself, ah, I have an appointment with Nathan on Friday, and ah, today is Friday. Therefore, I have an appointment with Nathan today. I'd better get going. What exactly is happening in that process um, when I come to believe that I have to go meet with Nathan now on the basis of my knowledge that I have an appointment with him on Friday and that today is Friday. Good. So on my official view, what happens is basically just that some judgments cause another judgment. So the thought is that now for the first time, simultaneously, at the same time, you judge both that you need to meet with Nathan on Friday and that today is Friday. And in doing that, you also judge that you need to meet with Nathan today. All of this happens in one mental act. So although I want to say the first two judgments cause the third judgment, this isn't a case where there's some kind of temporal gap between the first two judgments and the third judgment. I want to be really careful about saying things like, what happens when you do this is that you say to yourself or think to yourself, I need to meet with Nathan on Friday, and so on. Um, The way that this actually manifests in experience, I think, is as just the immediate realization, I have a meeting today. Or it manifests in your just, you know, that sort of, if you've missed the meeting, that sort of sinking feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you realize that you forgot to do something important. Yeah, so you want to resist the idea that, well... What's required for me to know that I have to meet with Nathan now? I have to know that I have an appointment with Nathan on Friday. I have to know that today is Friday, plus a third thing. Like, whenever today is Friday and I have an appointment with someone today, then I have to meet them right now. You want to resist the idea that there's a third belief that sneaks in there, and it's only thanks to that third belief that you get to draw the conclusion. Yeah, exactly. I think that what happens in these cases is that the the judgments that I need to meet with Nathan on Friday and that today is Friday just directly cause and so directly explain the judgment that I need to meet with Nathan today. There's sort of nothing standing in between. And one reason I think this is because I think that probably non-rational animals, animals that don't speak a language, can perform inferences like this. And it seems to me that they're not capable of having those sorts of general beliefs like You know, whenever you believe such and such or judge such and such, then judge this other thing. And this is especially clear, I think, in the case of perception. Uh, It seems like, you know, my cats aren't really capable of having beliefs about when their perceptual states justify their beliefs. They just have the perceptual state and come to believe. And furthermore, in certain cases, they're correct to do so and they acquire knowledge in doing so. So we talked about the case where everything goes well and I remember my appointment. What about the case where I forget my appointment? So I know that today is Friday and I know that I have an appointment with Nathan on Friday, but somehow I fail to put those two pieces of information together to get the result that, oh, gee, I better get moving and meet Nathan now. 
What's going on in that case? Good. So we can think of an example in which, let's say, it's like the last one. So you've made the appointment, and then you know you know that it's Friday all day on Friday. But let's suppose that you forget for the whole day that you had this appointment, and you what happens is you get up on Saturday and you have this email from Nathan saying, "Hey, where were you yesterday?" And this is a case where you never, as I want to put it, you never remember on your own that you had this meeting. You have to be reminded. So what happens in this sort of case? This is where I want to appeal to the idea that belief is a dispositional state. And so examples of dispositional states, sort of really boring ones, include things like fragility. So to say that something is fragile is just to say that it's disposed to break if subjected to certain sorts of forces. Similarly, I think a belief is a disposition to judge under certain sorts of conditions. Um, and I guess the only thing I really know how to say about this is when the content you would be judging, the information the judgment contains, would be relevant to your reasoning, to sort of what you're thinking about or what you're up to. And so what happens, I think, in the cases that go wrong is just that something interferes with the actualization of this disposition. So this is the kind of thing that can happen in cases of fragility, too. So you might, you know, have an egg eggs are notoriously fragile, but if you sort of pack it up in the right sort of way, then it's going to be prevented from breaking even when it is exerted, uh, subjected to certain forces. Or you can think about if you have a, you know, a drinking glass that's fragile, you might put something inside it to exert outward force from the inside of the glass so that you can strike the glass from the outside and it's not going to break. So you can sort of prevent the actualization of the disposition here. And the thought is, it's not like the glass stops being fragile in and of itself. It's just that you've sort of constructed things in such a way that its fragility can't lead it to break. So would it be accurate to say that a disposition is something like a tendency? So water has a disposition to boil at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, but we can defeat that tendency in certain special circumstances. So I can take it to the top of a mountain, and then it's going to boil at a different temperature, even though it, you know, in general, it tends to boil at 212 degrees or whatever. Matt has a tendency to become infuriated when he hears people whisper in movie theaters, but if it's somebody that he's in love with, then uh, he doesn't actually become infuriated in this case because the tendency doesn't come to fruition in every single case, but it's still a tendency. Yeah, that's pretty much right. Okay, so the belief that today is Friday would be something like a tendency to make use of the information that today is Friday when you engage in reasoning. Yeah, that's right. So is that what's happening in the case where I mess up the appointment? Is it like, you know, I have a tendency in general when whenever I know that it's Friday and I know that I have an appointment on Friday, generally I keep my word and keep the appointment, but like maybe some interfering factor in this case prevented me from taking the further step and realizing that now is my appointment with Nathan is it like that? Is it like taking the water to a, the top of a mountain or to putting reinforcement inside the glass to keep it from breaking or packing an egg in styrofoam to keep it from breaking to mask its disposition to break? Is it like that? Yeah, it's basically like that. The difference is that it's hard to know what to say about exactly what is preventing the actualization of the belief. And so in a lot of these cases, I mostly just think that it's an obvious fact about us as human beings that we do sometimes just forget things. And so in some sense, I think what's interfering is something like merely the fact that we are cognitively limited beings. So we're not capable of keeping in mind all the time everything that we know. 
our memories are sort of very fallible and don't always work that well. And so the idea is that whenever you sort of fail to put two disparate pieces of information together, and so come to know something that you are in a position to know, that's going to be just because somehow the beliefs that you're relying on that sort of allow you to draw that conclusion, those beliefs are failing to actualize. And maybe the ultimate explanation of this is going to be something about chemical processes in the brain. There's a lot of you know scientific work to be done on this, but at the sort of in basic level of everyday human interaction, the only thing to say about this really is just that sometimes we forget things, and then later we remember them. And sometimes we can identify something specific that prompted our remembering. Um, maybe at some point on this Friday, I think, do I need to do anything this afternoon? And thinking about whether I need to do anything this afternoon sort of calls back to mind the fact that I have a meeting with Nathan. So it's interesting. It sounds like on your view, you can know something but not have it in your mind. Is that right? That is right. Although there's an issue here that I think might be partly terminological and is potentially makes my view sound, I think, less attractive than I hope it ultimately is. You know, so if someone knows both that he has an appointment with Nathan on Friday afternoon and that today is Friday, we're going to be pretty willing to say that he knows that he has an appointment with Nathan today. And in particular, we'll hold him responsible if he ends up missing that meeting. So my thought here is that there's a lot of sort of good uh, practical pressure for us to talk that way. And so, as I want to put it, to treat someone as knowing something when, on my view, strictly speaking, they're merely in a position to know it, but haven't actually yet inferred it, as in this case. I see. So this idea that you can know something without having it in your mind reflects the way that Nathan might yell at you later on for having missed the appointment. But you knew that today was Friday, and you knew that we had an appointment today. So this um, conception of knowing that allows for you to know something without having it in the forefront of your mind reflects the way that we attribute responsibility to each other for stuff we know. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things I think is attractive about this sort of view that I'm trying to defend here is that although we, we need to be able to explain both that fact, the fact that we would hold me responsible in that case where I missed my meeting with Nathan, because in some sense I knew that I had this meeting, we also need to be able to explain the fact that I didn't show up to the meeting and that I didn't do it because I just decided to blow off the meeting, but I forgot about the meeting. And so there's this sort of pair of facts that like, in some sense, it seems like I did know that I had the meeting and so I can be held responsible for missing it. In another sense, I didn't know that I had the meeting and that explains why I didn't show up to it. And so in a certain way, I'm reserving the term knowledge, strictly speaking, for the case in which I actually draw the conclusion and so don't miss the meeting. Or at least if I do miss the meeting, it's because I intentionally blow it off. And I want to say in the other sorts of case where you know in this weaker sense, I want to say you're in a position to know, although you haven't yet actually acquired the information. Or maybe like you should know or like you'd better know or something. I actually want to be a little bit careful about that kind of talk. There is a sense in which I think that that's right, but I there's a broader sense of being in a position to know that doesn't always carry that implication of responsibility. And so this kind of thing comes up also in perception. There's a way in which visual perception, for example, makes available to you all kinds of knowledge that you don't actually acquire. So you might be 
sitting in a coffee shop on Monday and uh, talking to someone in the in the background, there was a case full of drinks. And one of the pieces of knowledge that was made available to me the whole time I was sitting there was that there were three different kinds of water on the third shelf down, like three different flavors. That was something that as soon as I looked at it and thought about it, I could come to know instantly. And furthermore, those cans of water were in my visual field the entire time. And so in some sense, I was in a position to know that there were three different flavors of water on that shelf for like an hour before I actually came to know that. But it seems like we only want to blame me for failing to acquire that knowledge where it was actually relevant to something. In this case, it definitely wasn't. Yeah, interesting. So it's like maybe the difference between actually knowing and merely being in a position to know something has to do with whether you're attending to the thing that you're in a position to know. In some sense of attending, I don't know that it necessarily takes a lot of effort. Sometimes you just notice things without having to sort of have decided to, you know, look for them or something. It's interesting too. It sounds like maybe part of what the impetus often for suddenly noticing things is, is they become important or like they take on significance or to use the term you used earlier, they become relevant. Yeah. I mean, I noticed the cans of water when I was looking for an example of actually this very thing that we're talking about now. (laughs) And I thought, what would make a good example? Well, there are three different flavors of water on that shelf. Let's go with that. But until then I had not, you know, paid any attention to those cans. I'm sure the bartender only put them there to help your argument. No doubt. So we looked at an example of something that is a correct inference, like it's a good piece of reasoning, this thing with Nathan, to conclude that you have an appointment with him now. So it's good reasoning, but then you fail to engage in it. That's the kind of example we've been thinking about. A related but kind of different example would be one where kind of like the opposite. So you do actually draw the inference, but it's a bad inference. It's not good reasoning. There is a mistake in your reasoning. What would be an example of that? Okay, so we can actually use a slight variation of another example of good reasoning that that I mentioned earlier. So you might, in this case, believe that Socrates is wise and believe that all philosophers are wise and come to believe thereby that Socrates is a philosopher. And now, although you might have missed it when you say it out loud because these things are sort of confusing, that actually is a bad inference. It's an instance of the fallacy of affirming the consequent. And so what's bad about this inference is that what you believe is that Socrates is wise, and you're trying to use the additional piece of information that all philosophers are wise to draw the conclusion that Socrates is a philosopher. The problem is that if there are people who are wise that aren't philosophers, and this is compatible with the view that all philosophers are wise, it might be that every philosopher is wise, but also some doctors are wise, and Socrates is one of the wise doctors, then it's not going to follow that Socrates is a philosopher. So this isn't a good inference. And now there's a problem about how to explain the possibility of these sorts of bad inferences and how to connect them to good inferences. In the case of a fallacious inference, it looks like what happens is, you know, we want to say, just as we want to say in the case of good reasoning, that you're what I'll call the premise judgments cause the conclusion judgment. And then there's a problem of distinguishing fallacious inferences, bad pieces of reasoning, from things that aren't even pieces of reasoning. So if I just 
associate, like I, you know, judge that there's coffee in my cup and that makes me think about the mug that I have at home, which makes me think about throwing clay or something. It looks like that's a sequence of judgments, but it's not a piece of reasoning. And so what happens is a lot of philosophers assume that whatever the connection is between the premise judgments and the conclusion judgment of an inference, it always has to be the same connection. So it has to be the same connection in good inferences as it is in fallacious inferences. And then you get a sort of problem because it looks like if you were just looking at good inferences, you could say that the premise judgments have to both cause the conclusion judgment and make it rational to believe it. So they have to support it, as you might put it. You can't say that about fallacious inferences because there, the premise judgments just don't support the conclusion judgment. And so this leads philosophers to say that what happens when you infer is not not just that the premise judgments alone cause the conclusion judgment, but you also need to have this additional judgment that your premises support your conclusion, and that sort of mediates between the premises and the conclusion. And this is a kind of suggestion that you mentioned earlier. So we don't want to say the good argument about Nathan and the bad argument about Socrates being a philosopher are the same in that judging some premises to be true causes the conclusion to be true, but the difference is that in the good case, there's an additional, like the conclusion is actually justified or something like that. There's a judgment that it's actually justified. We don't want to say that there's an additional thing in the good inference that the bad inference lacks for the reason that you gave earlier. But then what should we say about the difference? Right. So part of my account is actually to give importantly distinct accounts of good inferences and bad inferences. Um, And so I want to start with the good inferences and say that here, the connection between the premise judgments and the conclusion judgment is that the premise judgments cause the conclusion judgment in such a way as to produce knowledge. And so the, the basic sort of case here is going to be one in which you come to know the conclusion on the basis of your knowledge of the premises. And then there's a first kind of defective inference which is going to be one in which it's exactly like that, except that you didn't know the premises. And if you don't know the premises, you can't come to know the conclusion. So this might be a case where I falsely believe that Socrates is a doctor, and I truly believe that all doctors are wise, let's suppose. And so I draw the conclusion that uh, Socrates is wise. But in this case, since Socrates isn't a doctor... I can't have come to know the conclusion that Socrates is wise on that basis. So that's a first kind of defective inference, but it still involves the same kind of knowledge-producing connection between the premise judgments and the conclusion judgment, in the sense that if you had known the premises, you would have come to know the conclusion. So that's how the account of good inferences works. The account of fallacious inferences is slightly more complicated. And so the view I take here is actually that Fallacious inferences are a lot like mere associations. So they're a lot more like cases where you just judge one thing and then judge another as a result without there being any rational connection between them. So this is like, you know, judging that the coffee is ready and then judging that there's cheese in the fridge because the coffee somehow makes you think of cheese. So I think in a way, fallacious inferences are like that. 
The difference between a fallacious inference and a mere association is that in a fallacious inference, when one judgment causes another in this way, you also mistakenly come to believe that your premise judgment has caused your conclusion judgment in such a way as to allow you to know it. So what happens when you perform a fallacious inference is that you mistakenly think that you've come to know the conclusion on the basis of your knowledge of the premises, when in fact you haven't come to know it, at least in part because you can't come to know that conclusion on the basis of those premises, because the premises don't support the conclusion. Okay, so in the case of every philosopher is wise, Socrates is wise, therefore Socrates is a philosopher, and let's suppose those first two things are true. (laughs) I know that every philosopher is wise, and I know that Socrates is wise. But then during the final step, instead of coming to know that Socrates is a philosopher on the basis of those first two things I knew, I come to falsely believe that I know that Socrates is a philosopher. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And also, I guess I come to falsely believe that Socrates is a philosopher. Yes, exactly. Although maybe not falsely. It might, in fact, be true. You just can't come to know it on that basis. Oh, I see. Right. So it yeah. might accidentally be true relative right. to the reasons you believe it. Right. Okay, good. Right. He might happen to be a philosopher, but I shouldn't be entitled to say that on the basis of the first two things. Right. So it seems like your explanation of the difference between a good versus a bad piece of reasoning is piggybacking on some idea about what distinguishes belief from knowledge. So what exactly is the difference between belief and knowledge? So on my view, belief and knowledge are actually, um, in a certain sense, mental states of the same kind. And in particular, I take the sort of very traditional view in philosophy that knowledge is a kind of belief. And so one way of putting this is to say that knowledge is an especially good way of believing. Um, Knowledge is belief where everything has gone well. And the opposite way of putting this is to say that what we might call mere belief, belief that's not knowledge, is just an attempt at knowledge that has gone badly. And so they're very similar in a lot of respects, but they're different in sort of how successful they are in connecting you to the facts, as we might put it. So this is where my view starts to come together as a whole a little bit. I want to step up a level and say, you know, about thought in general, that is, what we can call theoretical thought, um, thought about the world, that thought is the capacity for knowledgeable judgment. And so this combines first the idea that belief is a disposition or tendency to judge, and also the view that when things go well, belief is going to be knowledgeable. So the general idea here then is that what a belief is, is a disposition that when actualized successfully, is a knowledgeable judgment. Interesting. So it sounds like there's two parts to that. The one part would be, well, you could have a belief that gets actualized unsuccessfully, but then you could also have a belief that doesn't get actualized. And those are two ways for the what you just described to like go off the rails. Yeah, good. And so belief is sort of related to judgment and knowledge then along these two different dimensions. So belief and judgment are related 
through the concept of a, a disposition and its actualizations. And belief and knowledge are related through the dimension of perfection, as I like to put it. Um, so in a certain sense, knowledge is just perfect belief. Okay, so it seems like the way you're laying everything out here, knowledge is like the basic thing in the theory, and you're kind of defining everything else in terms of it. So thought becomes the capacity for knowledgeable judgment. Judgment is when you make use of a piece of information in inference, but then inference, at least good inference, is going to be defined in terms of whether the conclusion is something you know. So knowledge, it seems like, is the basic thing driving the definitions of all these other concepts. Yeah, and the really basic idea is that we're starting from these acts in which knowledge is acquired, acts of you know successfully perceiving and inferring, where you actually come to know something new. So this is interesting because it's a set of concepts that are pretty familiar to a lot of philosophers, at least philosophers who are interested in what's called epistemology or the theory of knowledge. But like what you're defining in terms of what here is a little different. Why do you think it's important or like helpful to define everything in terms of knowledge in this way? Like what's the danger of, you know, maybe going the other way around, for example, like making belief the, the theoretically primitive undefined thing and defining knowledge as belief that is X, Y, Z. Why do you think it's ultimately you know, important to sort of like arrange things theoretically in this way? Well, so I think the most revealing way of answering this is a little bit autobiographical. Um, so I'll say a little bit about how I came to take this view very seriously. I began by thinking about this sort of argument that, at least partly due to Donald Davidson, about the relation between belief and truth. And so Davidson had this argument that you can't really make sense of someone who has a whole bunch of beliefs where all of those beliefs are just false. And the idea here is that if you try to do that, eventually what happens is that it turns out that the person doesn't really seem to have any beliefs. Their, their thoughts seem not to have any content. So if they supposedly have a bunch of beliefs about cats, but everything they believe about cats is false. They like don't believe that they're animals, they don't believe that they have tails, they don't believe that they have paws, whatever else. It starts to look like it's unclear what kinds of beliefs they can have. And it occurred to me at some point that you can run the same sort of argument for knowledge rather than truth. And so I started to think, well, if you really think about someone who has a whole bunch of true beliefs, even, but where they don't know any of them, you start to lose a grip on the idea that they even have the concepts involved. And so I started to think, well, to even have the concept of a cat is to know certain things about cats. Um, you have to have sort of a whole bunch of knowledge even to count as having the concept. And so I started to think, you know, if you generalize this, what you see is that it seems like someone can't have any contentful thoughts whatsoever about the world without having a whole bunch of knowledge. And so this, I think, gives us some reason to think that probably in some sense, knowledge has to be central to our account of what thinking is. At the same time, of course, we need to leave room for the possibility of thought that isn't knowledge. So you can have false beliefs, you can have true beliefs that don't amount to knowledge because you know your reasons for believing them have nothing to do with why they're true. And it seems to me that the concept of a disposition, or we can also call it a capacity or a power, can be used to sort of spell out that sort of connection. So there's this general thought, I guess, that one of the things that's distinctive about 
these powers or dispositions or capacities is that understanding a certain disposition involves understanding its successful actualizations. Um, so to understand what it is for something to be fragile, for example, you have to have an understanding of what it is for something to break. And so fragility is ultimately explained in terms of breaking. And so similar to the thought is all of the mental activity involved in thinking is going to ex be explained through its successful exercises. Um, and so explained through knowledge. And so the thought is you don't know what it is for someone to believe that there are trucks in the street unless you know what it would be for someone to know that there are trucks in the street. Nick Kozalek, I believe and hopefully also know that this was a very stimulating conversation, so thank you. Thanks for having me, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.